0: Welcome to tape number five of the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 14 The Mercy of God O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136, verse 1. For this perfection of the divine character is greatly to be praised. Three times over, in as many verses, does the psalmist here call upon the saints to give thanks unto the Lord for this adorable attribute. And surely this is the least that can be asked for from those who have been recipients of such bounty. When we contemplate the characteristics of this divine excellency, we cannot do otherwise than bless God for it. His mercy is great, 1 Kings 3.6, Plenteous, Psalm 86, verse 5, Tender, Luke 1.78, Abundant, 1 Peter 1.3, It is from everlasting to everlasting unto them that fear him, Psalm 103, verse 17. Well, may we say with the psalmist, I will sing aloud of thy mercy, Psalm 59, verse 16. I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33.19 Wherein differs the mercy of God from His grace? The mercy of God has its spring in the divine goodness. The first issue of God's goodness is His benignity, benignity, or bounty, by which He gives liberally to His creatures, as creatures. Thus he has given being and life to all things. The second issue of God's goodness is his mercy, which denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Thus mercy presupposes sin. Though it may not be easy at at the first consideration to perceive a real difference between the grace and the mercy of God, it helps us thereto if we carefully ponder his dealings with the unfallen angels. He has never exercised mercy towards them for they had never stood in any need thereof, not having sinned or come beneath the effects of the curse. Yet they certainly are the objects of God's free and sovereign grace. First because of his election of them from out of the whole angelic race, 1 Timothy 5:21. Secondly, and in consequence of their election because of his per- preservation of them from apostasy, when Satan rebelled and dragged down with him one-third of the celestial host. Revelation 12.14 Thirdly, in making Christ their head, Colossians 2.10 and 1 Peter 3.22, whereby they are eternally secured in the holy condition in which they were created. Fourthly, because of the exalted position which has been assigned them, to live in God's immediate presence, Daniel 7.10, to serve Him constantly in, the heavenly, in His heavenly temple, to receive honorable commissions from Him, Hebrews 1.14. Thus is abundant grace towards them, but mercy it is not. In endeavoring to study the mercy of God as it is set forth in the Scripture, a threefold distinction needs to be made if the word of truth is to be rightly divided thereon. First, there is a general mercy of god which is extended not only to all men believers and unbelievers alike but also to the entire creation his tender mercies are over all his works psalm 145 verse 9 he giveth to all life and breath and all things acts 17:25 god has pity upon the brute creation in their needs and supplies them with suitable provisions Secondly, there is a special mercy of God, which is exercised towards the children of men, helping and succoring them, notwithstanding their sins. To them also he communicates all the necessities of life, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5.45 Thirdly, there is a sovereign mercy which is reserved for the heirs of salvation, which is communicated to them in a covenant way through the Mediator. Following out a little further, the difference between the second and third distinctions pointed out above, it is important to note that the mercies which God bestows on the wicked are solely of a temporal nature, that is to say, they are confined strictly to this present life. There will be no mercy extended to them beyond the grave. It is a people of no understanding. Therefore he, have made them will, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. Isaiah 27.11 But at this point a difficulty may suggest itself to some of our readers. Namely, does not Scripture affirm that his mercy endureth forever? Psalm 136, verse 1. Two things need to be pointed out in that connection. God can never cease to be merciful, for this is a quality of the divine essence. Psalm 116, verse 5. But the exercise of his mercy is regulated by a sovereign will. This must be so, for there is nothing outside himself which obliges him to act. If there were, that something would be supreme, and God would cease to be God. It is pure sovereign grace which alone determines the exercise of divine mercy. God expressly affirms this fact in Romans 9.15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is not the wretchedness of the creature which causes him to show mercy, for God is not influenced by things outside of himself as we are. If God were influenced by the abject misery of leprous sinners, he would cleanse and save all of them. But he does not. Why? Simply because it is not his pleasure and purpose to do so. Still less, it is the merits of the creature which causes him to bestow mercies upon them, for it is a contradiction in terms to speak of meriting mercy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3.5 The one standing in direct antithesis to the other. Nor is it the merit of Christ which moves God to bestow mercies on his elect. That would be substituting the effect for the cause. It is through or because of the tender mercy of our God that Christ was sent here to his people. Luke 1.78 the merits of Christ make it possible for God to righteously bestow spiritual mercies on his elect, just as having been fully satisfied by the surety. No, mercy arises solely from God's imperial pleasure. Again, though it be true, blessedly and gloriously true, that God's mercy endureth forever, yet we must observe carefully the objects to whom his mercy is shown. Even the casting of the reprobate into the lake of fire is an act of mercy. The punishment of the wicked is to be contemplated from a three-point, threefold viewpoint. From God's side it is an act of justice, vindicating His honor. The mercy of God is never shown to the prejudice of His holiness and righteousness. From their side it is an act of equity, when they are made to suffer the due reward of their iniquities. But from the standpoint of the redeemed, the punishment of the wicked is an act of unspeakable mercy. How dreadful would it be if the present order of things, when the children of God are obliged to live in the midst of the children of the devil, should continue forever? Heaven would be at one. Heaven would at once cease to be heaven if the ears of the saints still heard the blasphemous and filthy language of the reprobate. What a mercy! That in the new Jerusalem there shall be no there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither worketh abomination. Revelation 21, Lest the reader might think in the last paragraph we have been drawing upon our imagination, let us appeal to Holy Scripture in support of what has been said. In Psalm 143:12 we find David praying, "And of the, thy mercy cut off mine enemies and destroy all of them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Again, in Psalm 136 verse 15, we read that God overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. It was an act of vengeance upon Pharaoh and his host, but it was an act of mercy upon the Israelites. Again in Revelation 19, verses 1 to 3, we read, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation, and glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. From what has just been before us, let us note how vain is the presumptuous hope of the wicked, who, notwithstanding their continued defiance of God, nevertheless count upon his merciful being merciful to them. How many there are who say, "I do not believe that God will ever cast me into hell? He is too merciful." Such a hope is a viper, which, if cherished in their bosoms, will sting them to death. God is a God of justice as well as mercy, and he has expressly declared that he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34.7 Yea, he has said, the wicked shall be turned into hell, all the nations shall forget God. Psalm 9.17 as well might men reason thus, I do not believe that if filth be allowed to accumulate, and sewage becomes stagnant, and people deprive themselves of fresh air, that a merciful God will let them fall a prey to a deadly fever. The fact is that those who neglect the laws of health are carried away by disease, notwithstanding God's mercy. Equally true is it that those who neglect the laws of spiritual health shall forever suffer the second death. Unspeakably solemn is it to see so many abusing this divine perfection. They continue to despise God's authority, trample upon his laws, continue in sin, and yet presume upon his mercy. But God will not be unjust to himself. God shows mercy to the truly penitent. But not to the impenitent. Luke 13:3. To continue in sin and yet reckon upon divine mercy, remitting punishment, is diabolical. It is saying, "Let us do evil that good may come." And of all such, it is written that their dam- damnation is just. Romans 3:8. Presumption shall most certainly be disappointed. Read carefully Deuteronomy 29 verses 18 to 20. Christ is the spiritual mercy seat, and all who despise and reject his lordship shall perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, Psalm 2.12. But let our final thought be of God's spiritual mercies unto his own people. Thy mercy is great unto the heavens, Psalm 57.10. The riches thereof transcend our loftiest thought, for as the heavens is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. Psalm 103, verse 11. None can measure it. The elect are designated vessels of mercy. Romans 9:23. It is mercy that quickened them when they were dead in sins. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. It is mercy that saves them. Titus 3 5. It is His abundant mercy which begat them unto an eternal inheritance. 1 Peter 1 3. Time would fail us to tell of His preserving, sustaining, pardoning, supplying mercy. Unto His own God is the Father of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Chapter 15. The love of God. There are three things told us in Scripture concerning the nature of God. First, God is spirit. John 4.24 In the Greek, there is no indefinite article, and to say God is a spirit is most objectionable, for it places him in a class with others. God is spirit in the highest sense. Because he is spirit, he is incorporeal, having no visible substance. Had God a tangible body, he would not be omnipresent. He would not be limited to one place because he is spirit. He fills heaven and earth. Secondly, God is light. 1 John one five, which is the opposite of darkness. In Scripture, darkness stands for sin, evil, death, and the light for holiness, goodness, and life. God is life means that. He, excuse me. God is light means that he is the sum of all excellency. Thirdly, God is love. John four eight, it is not simply that God loves, but that He is love itself. Love is not merely one of His attributes, but His very nature. There are many today who talk about the love of God who are total strangers to the love of God. The divine love is commonly regarded as a species of amiable weakness, a sort of good natured indulgence. It is reduced to a mere sickly sentiment patterned after human emotion. Now the truth is that on this, as in on everything else, our thoughts need to be formed and regulated by what is revealed thereon in Holy Scripture. That there is an urgent need for this is apparent not only from the ignorance which so generally prevails, but also the low state of spirituality which is now so sadly evident everywhere among professing Christians how little real love there is for god one chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with his wondrous love for his people the better we are acquainted with his love its character fullness blessedness the more will our hearts be drawn out in love to him number 1 the love of god is uninfluenced by this we mean there was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it into exercise nothing in the creature to attract or prompt it. The love which one creature has for another is because of something in the object, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, and uncaused. The only reason why God loves any is found in his own sovereign will. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved thee. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. God has loved his people from everlasting, and therefore nothing about the creature can be the cause of what is found in God from eternity. He loves from himself according to his own purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 9. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. God did not love us because we loved him, but he loved us before we had a particle of love for him. Had God loved us in return for ours, then it would not be spontaneous on his part. But because he loved us when we were loveless, it is clear that his love was uninfluenced. It is highly important, if God is to be honored and the heart of his child established, that we should be quite clear upon this precious truth. God's love for me and for each of his own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But, to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good in me. 2. It is eternal. This of necessity. God himself is eternal, and God is love. Therefore, as God Himself has no beginning, His love had none. Granted that such a concept far transcends the grasp of our feeble minds, nevertheless, where we cannot comprehend, we can bow in adoring worship. How clear is the testimony of Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. How blessed to know that the great and holy God loved his people before heaven and earth were called into existence, that he has set his heart upon them from all eternity. Clear proof of this is that his love is spontaneous, for he loved them endless ages before they had any being. The same precious truth is set, before, is set forth in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love having predestinated us. What praise should this evoke from each of His own children? How tranquilizing for the heart, since God's love towards me had no beginning, it can have no ending, since it is true that from everlasting Since it is true that from everlasting to everlasting he is God, and since God is love, then it it is equally true that from everlasting to everlasting he loves his people. 3. It is sovereign. This also is self-evident. God himself is sovereign. Under obligations to none, a law unto himself, acting always according to his own imperial pleasure. Since God is sovereign, and since He is love, it necessarily follows that He, His love is sovereign. Because God is God, He does as He pleases. Because God is love, He loves whom He pleases. Such is His own express affirmation, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, Romans 9.13. There was no more reason in Jacob why he should be the object of divine love than there was in Esau. They they both had the same parents and were born at the same time, being twins. Yet God loved the one and hated the other. Why? Because it pleased him to do so. The sovereignty of God's love necessarily follows from the fact that it is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. Thus, to affirm that the cause of his own love lies in God himself is only another way of saying he loves whom he pleases, For a moment, assume the opposite. Suppose God's love were regulated by anything else than his will. In such a case, he would love by rule, and loving by rule, he would be under a law of love. And then, so far from being free, God would himself be ruled by law, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? Some Excellency, which he foresaw in them, no what then, according to the good pleasure of his will, ephesians one four and five number four it is it is infinite, everything about God is infinite, his essence fills heaven and earth, his wisdom is illimitable, for he knows everything of the past, present, and future, his power is unbounded, for there is nothing too hard for him. So is love, is without limit. There is a depth to it which none can fathom. There is a height to it which none can scale. There is a length and a breadth to it which defies measurement by any creature standard. Beautifully is this intimated in Ephesians two four. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, the word great there is parallel with the God so loved. Of John 3.16 It tells us that the love of God is so transcendent it cannot be estimated. Quoting John Brine, 17.43 quote, No tongue can fully express the infinitude of God's love or any mind comprehended. It passes, it passes knowledge, Ephesians 3.19 The most extensive ideas that a finite mind can frame about divine love are infinitely below its true nature. The heaven is not so far above the earth as the goodness of God is beyond the most raised conceptions which we are able to form of it. It is an ocean which swells higher than all the mountains of opposition and such as are the objects of it. It is a fountain from which flows all necessary good to all those who are interested in it." It is immutable, as with God himself, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning change one seventeen so is love neither knows neither change nor diminution. The worm Jacob supplies a forceful example of this: Jacob have I loved declared Jehovah, and despite all his in- unbelief and waywardness, he never ceased to love him John thirteen one furnishes another beautiful il- illustration. That very night one of the apostles would say, Show us the Father. Another would deny him with cursings. All of them would be scandalized by and forsake him. Nevertheless, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The divine love is subject to no vicissitudes. Divine love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it. Song of Solomon 8. Verses six and seven Nothing can separate from it Romans eight thirty five to thirty nine. It is holy. God's love is not regulated by caprice, passion, or sentiment, but by principle. Just as his grace reigns not at the expense of it, but through righteousness, Romans five twenty one, so his love never conflicts with his holiness. God is light, 1 John 1.5, is mentioned before God is love, 1 John 4.8. God's love is no, more, is no mere amiable weakness or effeminate softness. Scripture declares that whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives, Hebrews 12.6. God will not wink at sin, even in his own people. His love is pure, unmixed with any maudlin sentimentality. It is gracious. The love and favor of God are inseparable. This is clearly brought out in Romans eight thirty-two to 39 What that love is, from which there can be no separation, is easily perceived from the design and scope of the immediate context. It is that goodwill and grace of God which determined him to give his son for sinners. That love was the impulse of power of Christ's incarnation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you are tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian, Go back to Calvary. Here then is abundant cause for trust and patience under divine affliction. Christ was beloved of the Father, yet he was not exempted from poverty, disgrace, and persecution. He hungered and thirsted. Thus, it was not incompatible with God's love for Christ when he permitted men to spit upon and smite him. Then let no Christian call into question God's love when he is brought under painful afflictions and trials. God did not enrich Christ on earth with temporal prosperity, for he had not where to lay his head. But he did give him the Spirit without measure. John 3.34 Learn then that spiritual blessings are the principal gifts of divine love. How blessed to know that when the world hates us, God loves us. Chapter 16 The Wrath of God It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there were no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight, they like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about the divine wrath that makes it too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. Yes, many there are who turn away from a vision of God's wrath as though they were called to look upon some blotch in the divine character or some blot upon the divine government, but what saith the Scriptures? As we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the facts concerning His wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong unto Him. His own challenge is: See now that I, see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I. Ki- I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glistening sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and I will reward them that hate me. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-nine to 41 A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Because God is holy, he hates all sin, and because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. Psalm 7, verse 11. Now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, or mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish, whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God, yet there would be if wrath were absent from him. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, and he who hates it not is a moral leper. How could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice Wisdom and folly, how could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity? Romans 9.22 How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity, as imperatively and eternally requisite as heaven is. Not only is there no perfection in God, but there is no perfection in him that is less perfect than another. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Insurrectionists against God's government shall be made to know that God is the Lord. They shall be made to feel how great that majesty is which they despise, and how dreadful is that threatened wrath which they so little regarded. Not that God's anger is a malignant and malicious retaliation inflicted injury for the sake of it, inflicting injury for the sake of it, or in return for injury received. no though God will vindicate his dominion as the governor of the universe, he will not be vindic- vindictive. That divine wrath is one of the perfections of God is not only evident from the considerations presented above, but is also clearly established by the express declarations of his own word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans one eighteen. Robert Haldane comments on this verse as follows quote, It was revealed when the sentence of death was first pronounced, the earth cursed and man driven out of the earthly paradise, and afterwards by such examples of punishment as those of the deluge and the destruction of the cities of the plain by fire from heaven, but especially by the reign of death throughout the world. It was proclaimed in the curse of the law on every transgression and was intimated in the institution of sacrifice and all the services of the Mosaic dispensation. In the eighth chapter of this epistle, the apostle calls the attention of believers to the fact that the whole creation has become subject to vanity and groaneth and travaileth together in pain, The same creation which declares that there is a God and publishes his glory also proves that he is the enemy of sin and the avenger of the crimes of men. But above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to manifest the divine character and when that wrath was displayed in his sufferings and death in a manner more awful than by all the tokens God has before given of his displeasure against sin. Besides this, the future and eternal punishment of the wicked is now declared in terms more solemn and explicit than formerly. Under the new dispensation, there are two revelations given from heaven, one of wrath and other of grace. End quote. Please please go on to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This ends tape number five. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. By phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.